This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Sunday, March 27, and welcome to the seventh episode in this series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show. Uh, Download the show as audio in addition to my daily 5-Minute News podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me today is the author of American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World But Failed Its People. He serves as a professor of writing and linguistics at Georgia Southern University, Jared Yates Sexton. Jared, hi. Um, thank you for joining us today. You're in a you're in a hotel room, so me. you're clearly on the move somewhere, which is good. I always like talking to people in hotel rooms because it's often nicer than their actual home, <laughs> and that's 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 kind of how it is in, during the pandemic. Now it's like we pray we have a better background than we really do. I was going to say I always enjoy having conversations from a hotel room because I feel yes. like a different person. So I feel like right. I, I I have something of a of something different to offer here. I'm pleased about that. Yeah, you can kind of embody a more kind of uh, maybe a, depending. It all depends on the hotel, doesn't it? Let's be honest. It depends on the hotel. Um, there's three stories I want to look at today. Uh, firstly, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson has been having uh, hearings, like uh, two days of hearings. The first day went on for about 13 hours, uh, where she was given some wonderful support by the Democratic uh, senators, uh, the likes of Cory Booker, for example, who kind of celebrated her in so many ways. But then, of course, we had uh, people like Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham, who really went for the jugular. Um, Really not directed at her personally, but uh, there are deeper issues that we're going to discuss. So that's one thing that we'll we'll look at. Uh, Also, the story of uh, Ginny Thomas. This is the uh, wife of Clarence Thomas. Uh, He's been in hospital, as we know, for a a few days. Um, But it's been revealed that... um, There may be conflict of uh, interest issues. This is uh, after she uh, pressed Donald Trump's White House chief of staff to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. We know she is a far-right activist, and her husband is, of course, a Supreme Court justice. And uh, finally, we're going to look at the uh, story where Republicans want to toss out a state Supreme Court justice for the high crime of demanding fair election maps. And uh, this is uh, a very interesting story out of uh, Ohio. So some some things to think about. But I, I want to kind of focus on your expertise on, you know, fascism in America. And, and people rarely put those two things together. You know, they, they often think of fascism as being something that happens, uh, you know, in far off lands. And it's very interesting to me that it's like people on the right that want to believe that fascism is actually on the left. And the Republican Party, it seems, if we just go back to Katanji Brown Jackson and, 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 the, and the hearings, what we saw was a Republican Party that was more concerned about power and intimidation and arguably 
racist undertones that for me as a viewer were very present during a lot of these conversations, certainly from Lindsey Graham, the vitriol with which this guy spoke to her. He, he wouldn't talk to a white man like that. So I really recognize that there was an exposure going on here. Is that something you noticed? Did you see the hearings? Did you get that same feeling that I did? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it was an incredibly repulsive display. And, you know, I, I was watching the lead up to uh, her, her nomination hearings. And, you know, people were saying, well, I think the Republicans are going to take this one easy. You know, they've they've already stolen the court. They've already taken the power. I think they'll go ahead and let Democrats have this one. Um, the fact that it's the, the first black woman Supreme Court justice told me from the very beginning that this would not be a uh, nomination that they were going to take easy. And I want to make it very clear. None of this is actually about Kentanji Brown-Jackson. It's not. It's, it's completely about what she has been made to represent. And the Republican Party, I think there are different factions within it. One faction wants to believe that they're not racist, they're not sexist, they're not classist, they're simply realist, right? They, they see the world as it actually is and they don't want to hide behind, you know, liberal sort of framings of things. Then there's another group that understands very well that it is completely dedicated to maintaining patriarchal white supremacist control. This was a meeting of all of those things. And it became apparent very, very quickly that they were going to frame this as saying that she was not qualified to be a Supreme Court justice, uh, which is a large part of their attacks on things like, quote unquote, affirmative action. The entire message was that she was not just she she wasn't even qualified, but that it was almost criminal that she would be lifted up to this point. You know, it was it was almost like she was being taken advantage of, which the Republicans and the right wing loves to do. The idea that people of color are constantly being lifted up to positions that they don't deserve. And it's being done by liberals who are trying to use them for some sort of purpose. On top of that, there were some really disturbing things that that came on in, in bigger, stronger ways than even I expected. Um, you know, obviously you have Josh Howley and other members of the Republican Party starting to tip their hats towards the QAnon conspiracy theory, the idea that there are child abusing cabals that, that run the world. And the, the attacks on Brown Jackson were, um, to, to be honest, I expected them to be really bad, but it was way more repulsive than even I expected. She was surprisingly measured, wasn't she, considering that as an intelligent woman who, had, who has this amazing job and is overly qualified for this next job, that she had to sit and be subjected to this language. And I, and I noted that uh, Ted Cruz, the moment he'd finished her, her, his interrogation, there was a photograph taken of him from behind in the gallery of him looking at his cell phone and he'd searched his own name on Twitter to see what impact his performance had had on social media. Is, is it all a performance now? I mean, this is my concern is that, you know, we have Biden desperate to be bipartisan with policy and failing miserably in that regard. And really, Republicans have, have rallied to, to block at every juncture. They have absolutely no desire to see Democrats be successful in anything. And therefore, they have no desire to see America be successful in anything. I mean, is it that they have 
got to the point now where they just they've given up on their own country and they're just fighting for themselves. Well, first of all, I just want to say with Jackson, I think what we saw from her performance was uh, a woman of color who, you know, basically in order to be successful in the world has had to sit and listen to white men scream at her and, and yeah. you know, deride her intelligence and capability. Uh, so I thought that was really laudatory. But with the Republican Party, um, I wrote about this a little while back. It's really important to to think about the fact that the Republican Party is no longer a political party. It's a front for a certain vested interest in this country, uh, the incredibly wealthy, evangelical, patriarchal powers. Um, they don't have an agenda. They do not have set principles. I mean, if you actually take a look at it, they're, you know, it's not for uh, small government. Whenever they have power over government, they overreach. They tell everyone how to live. They're not for fiscal conservatism. They run up bigger deficits than anybody. They're not pro-life. That's a cudgel that they use to hide control over women and white supremacist ambitions. At this point, the Republican Party has been completely overtaken by right-wing grifters and personalities. And Ted Cruz is a really interesting case. Ted Cruz is incredibly intelligent. I mean, he he does under. I mean, he has this background in constitutional law. Like he understands. Yeah, he's overly and, educated, isn't he? Certainly. Yeah, and this is a problem with Cruz and why he probably will never be president of the United States of America, which is. He's a weather vane in all of this. He sees where trends are going. And the trend in the Republican Party is not towards intellectualism. It's towards being a right-wing grifter who sells white male aggrievement. It's about wannabe reality TV stars who want to kick up as much dust as humanly possible and see if they're trending on Twitter. Now, Ted Cruz has the instincts for that. It just so happens that he's still trying to base all of this in his constitutional law and ideas. Marjorie Taylor Greene right now, who is the next level after Donald Trump, like he ushered in this brand new level where it's a bunch of charlatans and grifters. It's a bunch of people who go out and there's a reason they're not consistent. There's a reason why their main agenda at this point is just picking out anything basically that they can throw at the wall, feel like it sticks. It can be Dr. Seuss. It can be Mr. Potato Head. It doesn't matter because none of this has anything to do with passing legislation. That's happening at the state level. That It's happening through think tanks. It's happening through the wealthy organizing these laws. The Republican Party at this point is simply sort of a public relations front that can just sort of give all these grievances some sort of like national attention. Are we not going to see Republican voters, traditional Republican voters, as well as Trump's base? You know, there's always going to be that group that will follow him and go to every rally and, and wear their MAGA hats. But those former fiscal uh, fiscal conservatives that you talk about, you know, people that were maybe moderates or people that had, had, you know, who care more about their tax dollars. I mean, it always seems to come back to that with Republicans, right? You know, we want to pay less tax. And so we're going to go which, with, with whichever party affords us the opportunity to pay less tax. Are they not starting to see holes in Republican arguments now? I mean, this is my concern because they have this scattergun approach to owning the libs, because there is this lack of policy. Conservatives are not stupid people, you know, voters, not stupid people, gullible in some cases, cult-like in other cases, but there's still a good percentage of people, if it was 74-odd million that voted for Trump, I mean, they're not all Trump obsessives. They didn't all drink the Kool-Aid. They just are traditional Republicans. So they must have started to see that there is no consistency to any of these arguments. 
it's it's there's myriad Republicans out there. There's it's it's I like to say that it's a, a really narrow tent, but a lot of people figure out a way to get underneath it. And there there are obviously a bunch of what we would uh, technically refer to as neoliberals within the Republican Party. You know, people who obviously want small budgets. They want to keep uh, uh, government spending in check. They want to keep government out of, you know, their, their checkbooks. They want to get rid of regulation. But there's something else that has happened here. And this is a larger part of the conversation that I think a lot of people are still in denial about. Um, Donald Trump, obviously, as a demagogue, was able to ride a, um, a, a wave of anger and rage at neoliberals. And neoliberals are in the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party. There's a consensus economically and in a lot of different areas. It just so happens there are cultural issues, political issues you can disagree on. Donald Trump basically, in his campaign, ran to the left, to the center, and to the right of everybody else. It was a, a mishmash of, of absolutely, um, to be frank, just incoherent ideas. Because he didn't mean any of them. It's, it's whatever, you know, picked him up in the polls, whatever got him a state. He didn't actually intend to drain the swamp. He didn't intend to end American carnage. It just so happens that he had some people in his ear who would explain to him what people wanted to hear. After all, he is a charlatan. He has no actual principles. He wanted power. He wanted profit. That's about it. We've now reached a point, though, and this is a really, uh, I think, important thing that a lot of people have missed out on. Donald Trump basically figured out a way to blow a hole in the neoliberal consensus. And there are a lot of people, particularly libertarians, right-wing extremists, white supremacists, evangelical extremists, you name them, who have looked at what Donald Trump said and what he did and what he accomplished they're now retroversing everything that he did, creating a new ideology of illiberal democracy, uh, Christian democracy, fascism, whatever we want to call it. So what is actually happening within the Republican Party is there is a civil war over who is going to control it going forward. Uh, the group that I just mentioned, the illiberals, the, the, the extremists, are taking over that party right now. And they, um, you know, this has been going on for a long time. This, this transformation and this move, it just so happens that we're watching one of the final mutations. Uh, and, and we're seeing a lot of the stuff that the Republicans you talked about who are like, well, I just want no taxes. Well, there were things underneath not wanting taxes, right? Uh, taxes are one thing, but they're also representative of power and affluence and what they're able to do and who is in control. And we're seeing a lot of that white supremacy, a lot of that sexism, a lot of that illiberal nature starting to come to the surface. And there's nothing to hide behind anymore. It's just pure, unvarnished uh, rage and illiberalism. In your book, you reference the Constitution a lot and how, you know, the, the origins of the Constitution, making reference to, you know, white landowners being protected from the slaves, effectively, you know, protecting and from the great unwashed. And I do hear Republicans referencing the Constitution for all the wrong reasons these days. It's like the last thing they have. And because it's not been updated, aside from, you know, various amendments, but fundamentally it's not been updated, it still suits them when they make reference to some of these larger issues. So do you think that we're going to get to a point where the Republican Party will become irrelevant or are they, are they still, do they still have legs because they are using this historic document to give them license to be 
racist. They're almost saying the founding fathers said it was okay, in addition to Trump saying it was okay. So how does the Constitution figure in, in, the, in the party going forward? I mean, it figures into everything. And I'm so glad you brought this up because I could bore some people with this. I, you know, to, to be frank, like when the Constitution was brought about, it was written explicitly. And for anybody who wants to, go back and look at James Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention because it'll blow your hair back. They didn't have the right to actually frame a constitution. They basically went in, created their own right, did it. And in the discussions, it's not it's not up to interpretation. They say as much. Normal, average, working people should not have a vote. And if they have a vote, it should be restricted. And the powerful, wealthy white men, most of them slaveholders, they knew better than everybody else. Democracy and power was best in their hands. And if you actually look at how the government was set up, it was intended to be a one-party system. And it just so happens that the wealthy and the powerful, those white men, immediately went to war against one another. And it's really funny to look at how it happened. Uh, you know, the, the election of 1800, which is where the split happens, the entire thing is about who is an agent of the Illuminati, you know, who's trying to destroy America? So, I mean, this whole thing has been present from the very beginning. The difference here, though, is that the Republican Party is historically unpopular. Uh, they are representing a dwindling number of people in this country, and democracy does not serve them. One of the only reasons that they have any power base whatsoever is because the founders originally created an unequal system that would protect a minority of wealthy white men. Guess what? It still works. The Electoral College still serves that. The Senate still serves that. All of this is based on trying to maintain power for a very specific group of people. So this is where we're at. The Republican Party is still trying to use the racist, sexist, classist ideas of the founders to maintain the control that the founders originally wanted to create. So when you ask me, will the Constitution be something they can use, they're already using it. The question, though, is whether the other freedoms that the Constitution goes ahead and presents and guarantees, if we're going to get to a point where in the future, in order to create, uh, protect their dwindling power, whether or not they'll frame a new Constitution. And if you want to know what that would look like, all you have to go, all you have to do is go to Hungary. And Hungary is the the base for this. It's it's basically uh, where they're they're getting their notes from. And basically, with Viktor Orban, who declared that liberal democracy. And this is an important thing. They think that liberal democracy is dangerous because it allows people to vote. It allows multiculturalism and it, it, it threatens their power. Uh, Viktor Orban has gotten rid of liberal democracy, pulled it up by the root and said, we now have illiberal Christian democracy because the right people need to be in charge. What they're going to try and do at some point is to protect themselves by getting rid of the rights to vote, getting rid of these constitutional ideas, and setting up a new system that further protects them. So when you ask if they'll be irrelevant, my God, if we're lucky, they'll be irrelevant. But they are well on their way towards realizing a lot of these goals. And I think that people keep denying that that's the fact is going to give them room and cover to operate. The um, the character of these Republicans that you describe has infiltrated itself into at all levels of government, but also yep. the separation of power has become diluted in many ways. And and so this week it was reported by the Washington Post that it had obtained a stash of twenty nine text messages between Ginny Thomas. Uh, the wife of Clarence Thomas, and Mark Meadows, then Trump's top White House aide, 
which were exchanged in the days after the election in November 2020. And in the texts, she blatantly urge, urges Mark Meadows to do anything he could to subvert the Democratic result so as to frustrate Joe Biden's victory and keep Trump in power. Now, this is significant, isn't it, for multiple reasons. Um, and as much as she denies, she actually was you know, asked about this and she said, you know, I don't talk about anything with my husband, <laughs> which is just like a kind of it's just it's so offensive to anybody with a brain. So, I mean, what are we looking at here? Because if you know, the president was in the former president was infected, as we know, and the people around him were the, the, the pox that forced him because he wasn't even a Republican, arguably. I mean, Trump's a populist. He'll go in any any direction. So you had the Bannons and these characters that were responsible for him. But when we look at the Supreme Court, and although it's political, which I still can't get my head around, you know, I come from a country where you don't have political courts and, and justice is, is impartial. What are the consequences of having Clarence Thomas's wife, who is a far right activist and increasingly so like down the QAnon rabbit hole? What are the consequences of having supposedly that independent judiciary being being infected by this very um, disease that we're talking about happening across the Republican Party? Well, I I have to tell you, um, while recoiling in horror from this information, there is a part of me that is also relieved. Because one of the things that's happening here is we're sort of pulling back the bandages and looking at the extent of the infection. Because when you talk about January 6th, you know, uh, the, the convenient narrative that happened was that it was a bunch of unwashed masses who got all riled up. They were probably all drunk and then they ended up there and that was it. And it was, you know, I, I watched in real time as a lot of people tried to launder it, you know, and they were like, this isn't that big of a deal. And I'm even talking about, you know, liberal journalists. It's yeah. their job to cover this stuff. But there is a real desire to pretend like Everything's going to be fine. There really isn't a problem here. Like things will work themselves out. But the real truth about January 6th is that there were so many multiple different factors, the different groups that were there that were starting to coagulate and work together. You mentioned QAnon. QAnon is sort of a delivery system. It gives people a worldview where they start to suddenly think that an anti-democratic military coup is the only way to put things to right. And guess what? If you believe QAnon or don't even know that you believe QAnon and you believe QAnon, you might be okay if there is a coup or some sort of a power grab. But that's not it, though. And it wasn't just Donald Trump. It also wasn't just Mark Meadows. It wasn't just Jenny Thomas. It was actually the entire apparatus of the right-wing American project. A large part of this were think tanks. And, and these are the people that no one wants to talk about. And I'm sure somebody just yawned as I said think tanks. But these are these groups that are being funded by the incredibly wealthy people who want to get rid of government as a public good. They want to get rid of deregulation. And quite frankly, they have no, uh, they, they have no desire for democracy to actually be pulled through. They 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 that they want to actually want to go ahead and deal that a final. And, and I have block. a theory. I have a theory on this. Just as an aside, that is, it's unfortunate that the Democratic Party is called the Democratic Party because that fundamentally brands democracy as exclusive to Democrats. And I and I fear that more and it more you never hear Republicans saying yep. the word democracy out loud because to them it it echoes Democrat. People who are experts on coups have said that the January 6th insurrection was the rehearsal and that there's a very good chance that it could happen again. 
because it was a failed coup ultimately, and they don't want to fail, they want to succeed. And therefore, the next time is going to be a far bigger issue. And we've seen the Republican Party already taking advantage of the redrawing of boundary lines, you know, gerrymandering. And this and this is leads us to this other story about the Ohio Republicans who would rather impeach a judge than stop cheating at elections. You know, she she was a Republican judge and yet she refused to accept their 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 new maps and now they want to get rid of her. I mean, this is like authoritarian authoritarianism personified, isn't it? So if these experts on coups are saying the next one is the one we want to worry about. How worried should we be? Well, I, I, I want to answer that, first of all, by explaining why this isn't being blared from every headline and every news show. And I partly for me, it's been incredibly frustrating as I've been educating myself on this, researching this. Um, it's very obvious the other experts that I talk to, uh, we're all in agreement about what is happening because it's apparent. It's, it's it really at this point to not understand what is occurring, not just in America, but around the world. I think you literally have to either choose to be delusional or uh, you're you're profiting off of. I, I really, truly believe that at this point. And a large part of the reason is that the, the people who are supposed to be covering this, the, the journalists, the, the politicians who are supposed to be speaking out about this, um, they do not want to risk their wealth, their power, and their affluence. Uh, because to literally sit here and talk about authoritarianism in the United States of America, all of a sudden that means, oh, the foundations are rotten. Something's happening. There is an opportunity for fascism to take hold. That means you have to reconsider things. So you have a lot of people in the media who, by the way, are legacy themselves or they come from wealthy families. They have absolutely no desire to start taking on the forces of inequality to even talk about redistribution of wealth or power or affluence. And so they literally want to believe that things are just going to be fine. And the problem is that the political class in this country is so bought and sold by corporations and special interests that they can't start talking about what's happening across the aisle. And one of the biggest failures of all of this, and I, I keep telling anybody that I can, that the Democrats... They have no explanation for what's going on because they can't talk about corruption. They can't talk about special interests. They can't talk about inequality. They can make gestures towards it, right? But they have no desire to actually say the Republican Party is infringing on people's rights. They are part of an illiberal movement and they're not going to stop. Instead, they say, my friends across the aisle, I assume they'll come to their senses. Joe Biden infamously said, I think they're going to wake up and feel differently after I'm elected, which wasn't just naive. It was negligently naive. And that idea isn't true. The Republican Party is playing a different game than the Democratic Party at this point. They are operating on a different level than what the media and the pundit class believes that they are. They are literally pushing all of their chips into the center of the table because they can't win elections anymore. We, it's impossible. We uh, I mean, I don't get to vote in this country because I'm, I'm an immigrant as much as I would love to, but it's, it's against the law. Um, and we've talked in previous episodes on this show um, about Americans' inability to self-critique and, and why, you know, just like allow, allow the country to evolve, maybe because the country's so young, maybe because uh, American exceptionalism, this is a big subject for you, I know, and we can talk about that in a moment. But I, I recognize that if people would look at you and I and say, we're on the left, okay? Yet we are able to criticize the Democratic president. We are able to say that the guy is negligent. 
we are able to say that the guy is not doing enough. That suggests to me that we are not in a cult. We are, you know, innocent bystanders of a political party. We are activated. We are activists. I'm a journalist. You're, 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 a, you're an author on these subjects. But what's so important is that we critique because we want it to be better, not because we are, have hatred in our hearts, We're just because we want it to be better. But the difference with the, with the Republicans is they rally behind a cause that is flawed. So all of them are trying to sing off the same hymn sheet. But there is, as you said earlier, there's no policy. There, 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 is no, there is no desire to advance. The only reason they agreed to, to infrastructure was because in these states, as we're seeing now with Ron DeSantis in Florida, he takes credit for getting the money from the federal government and is like, look, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix that. And it's like, hey, it wasn't your money in the first place. So, so, so the reason I say this is because it's important, is it not, to explain to people that there is a fundamental difference between those on the left and those on the right in America. And that is that the, those on the left care about the country, want it to be better, even if it means criticizing their leader. Yeah. And, and I want to be very clear about this. Um, to, to actually understand what's going on, the first thing you have to do is you have to move beyond the dichotomous idea, which is the other side is inherently evil and wrong about everything. And my side is perfect about everything. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of what we're talking about right now is actually skirting around the topic of neoliberalism, which took over not just America, but world politics starting in the night. Well, it starts in the 1970s, really takes off in the 80s and the 90s. And you start to have this consensus among the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, which is how the country should be run economically, which is to help free markets get get rid of regulation and move forward. And more or less, by the way, take power out of the hands of people right? To enforce austerity and basically to defang and depower government. We've now reached a point where neither of our two major parties can really exercise all of that much power from a legislative standpoint. That's not a coincidence. That's intentional. And one of the reasons why people are getting so frustrated is because it's like, I thought you were president of the United States. I thought you could make things happen. And it's like, well, this has been, this has become a logjam on purpose. This was an intentional depowering of the federal government. And you've now actually reached a point where state governments, power is moved back to them. And you're starting to see these little fiefdoms that are being run, particularly by not just the Republican Party, but those think tanks that we've been talking about who are producing this legislation. They're using, quote unquote, CRT and QAnon conspiracy theories to try and destroy public education and all of that. So we have to be able to talk about how neither side is some sort of a, a messianic movement. They're both expressions of power and wealth and capital. It just so happens that the left can see this. The Republican Party, however, and the right, it's all based on identity, right? The, the, that American exceptionalism you're talking about. For the right wing, they look at it and they say, I'm an American and therefore I'm exceptional. Right. And to even begin critiquing America means you're critiquing them. Right. Anything that they have, any sort of critique you have about modern society is about chiseling away at their own foundational identity. And as a result, it becomes their own religion. It becomes their own worldview. And it has to constantly struggle through this cognitive dissonance to the point where on, on one hand, they're like, America is great. Well, no, America must be made great again. America is great. America must be made great again. 
And it, it very much is a cult-like programming that follows along religious uh, orthodoxies. But what we actually need to be talking about is what we're talking about right now, which is the deeper actual material conditions of politics and how we've reached this point. So if you're realistic and you're honest and you're actually mature about this, there's plenty of blame to go around of why we've reached this point, And there's plenty of criticisms that need to be heard. But it's religious orthodoxy that works upon the entire political body to sit there and say, you are a traitor, you're evil, there's only one way to be. And it literally becomes a religious war for these people. And, and, and that is, uh, it's not just sad, it's dangerous. I want to talk about religion just for a moment, because, you know, the, the evangelical Christianity, which is the dominant religion in the United States, we're starting to see a lot of the pastors take on this QAnon concept and weave it into their sermons. We're, we're seeing in these communities of God-fearing people, for the first time, outwardly anyway, politics being part of, of the service, almost to the point that they're wearing MAGA hats during, during the, during the uh, religious services. And this is not happening in one or two places. I mean, a lot of these pastors now, they are committed to these conspiracy theories they have taken on all of the language that you will hear from, you know, what, what used to be, you know, the Alex Jones movement. Like he was the solitary voice for a long time on Infowars. And now that view has become the majority view because Fox News have repeated it. And he is less of a fringe person and has now been moved into the very kind of center of the party along with all because of Trump, because Trump basically was insecure and needed to embrace find people on both sides to bring in all of these extremist groups to make them his you know create his majority that he was seeking so you know now now that religion has been infiltrated i mean is this the beginning of the end now i mean what hope is there because how how are you going to get these people back because you know god is all powerful god is sits at the top of this entire thing ab above the president I, I, it makes me very nervous jared it should. And, and I want to go ahead and start off on a personal note. I grew up in this. I grew up in a very, very extremist evangelical environment. And I have to tell you, in the 1980s, my sermons were absolutely talking about the New World Order conspiracy theory. I mean, it was American exceptionalism. The devil is coming after America. He hates it because it's God's champion. And by the way, underneath all of that is white supremacy, by right. the way. Because but the it, language it, wasn't as explicit back then. It, as it is now, it wasn't no. so political. It wasn't following these yes. kind of these these QAnon ideals. And you'll notice what's happened is that so in the 1980s, particularly with the rise of Ronald Reagan, one of the reasons he was so able to capture uh, power in the United States of America and enable that neoliberalism that we were talking about is because he brought in the evangelical right, which was absolutely desperate to start climbing onto power, right? They, they, and, and by the way, that was all part of white supremacy and patriarchal control. And so as that gets brought in, one of the things that happens is that evangelical sort of mindset, it, it begins to really infect American discourse. And, and for people who are old enough, you might remember things like the satanic panic, which is, I mean, you would turn on NBC and NBC would be talking about demonic possession. It would be talking about, you know, satanic cults who wanted to steal your children. I mean, that should sound familiar to everybody. But during that time, 
the institutionalists within the Republican Party, the ones who wanted to create neoliberalism, the, the ones who want to get rid of deregulation and go into hypercapitalism, they had control of the party. They used it as a weapon, but they, kept, they contained it, right? And what has happened, speaking of that civil war that you and I were talking about earlier, all of a sudden Trump manifested and made it clear that the people that they kept over here at arm's length were going to start exercising power within the Republican Party. They created a Frankenstein's monster, and it got loose, and it's currently getting loose, and they don't have any control over it. But I will tell you this. There is some hope, because I've had a lot of pastors who have reached out to me. And I'm talking about people who were definitely preaching exactly what I'm talking about, white supremacy, American exceptionalism, all of that stuff. They looked up one day and they started realizing that they had a bunch of QAnon people in their, in their, you know, their crowds and in, in their supporters and parishioners. And they looked up and they were like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what's happening. All of a sudden, uh, QAnon, by the way, as it's mutated and changed, has started telling people, leave any church that won't talk about this. You know, this great movement away from these churches into the patriot churches that you're talking about. I have hope in the fact that a lot of these pastors are starting to become terrified about this. But I do have to tell you that the moment that Christian nationalism, which is the, the banner that all of this is following under, it is growing. The moment that this becomes fully weaponized is when all of these things, because disenfranchisement, uh, legislation, of course, that will go after families and people, all of these things, the moment that they're given the complete religious sheen, that's when it gets really dangerous. And that is what we're looking at, which is one of the reasons I keep telling people to prepare themselves and to get serious about this. Because the moment that religious dominionism starts becoming the main operating procedure and you can't get away from it, that's when things start getting out of control in a hurry. I, I, we need to finish, but I, I kind of want to... I always like to end on a slightly positive note because these are very doomsday conversations. And, you know, it's, it's very easy to kind of end up thinking that, you know, the end of the world is nigh. I mean, I, I actually believe we're in another civil war. You know, the civil war is already underway. It doesn't look like the civil war of, of old with a, with a musket, you know. It's, it's a information warfare now. It's, it's social media warfare. It's the likes of some of these extremist characters going on TV and using... Uh, Katanji Brown Jackson's hearing as an opportunity, as a platform to speak directly to the people at home, because they know it's going to get repeated on the news, as you said. These people, if they are uh, mobilized by Trump or whoever is going to follow in his footsteps, these are the people with a well-stocked militia. These are the people that took that element of the Constitution seriously. It doesn't mean a solitary musket anymore. It means a, 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 a semi-automatic weapon, as we've seen in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, a kid who wants to take the law into his own hands and, and, and sees the world through a, ver a very narrow field of vision and is hailed as a superstar amongst right-wing circles, is, is, is paraded on, on, at conferences like, you know, the guy killed two people in cold blood. So how do, we, how do we qualify in our own minds, those of us that do not own a well-stocked militia, that we are not going to be on the receiving end of you know, a, a movement that will be increasingly violent, that will be increasingly aggressive, and will be you know, fundamentally taking back their country on their terms, outside of government, outside of overturning an election and they'll just do it 
with hand-to-hand combat? Well, I'll tell you this. So first of all, anybody who's read my stuff, looked at my tweets, any of that, like I understand that this is a lot of very frightening things, but I have to reiterate to people, I'm very hopeful. I actually am optimistic. And one of the reasons I'm optimistic are conversations like the one that you and I are having. We're talking about real issues. We're not talking about slogans. We're not talking about just like, you know, stuff that we talked about this before, like 30 second sound bites that can, you know, end up on cable news. I actually think a lot of people are starting to recognize that something isn't right because the story of America and history and politics, it doesn't work anymore. And I actually think what we're watching in Ukraine and with Vladimir Putin's aggression, all of this stuff the world is starting to shift. There's a groaning that's occurring. This world order that uh, neoliberalism represents, which is all about exploitation, anti-democratic ideas, um, it's, it's starting to lose its power. Now, that's a really frightening thing. And I have to let people know the reason why you feel anxiety and you feel fear is because we are in a moment of change. We are at a crossroads. The bad news is there are a lot of options out there that could get really, really ugly very, very quickly. If we don't deal with neo-fascism, if we don't deal with exploitation and inequality, global climate change is going to exacerbate all of those things in ways that uh, it, it, would, it would light up your nightmares. But I do have to tell you that in these malleable moments where things could go very, very bad, things could go really well. Because as people start asking questions, and all of a sudden as people start saying, you know what, I think democracy is a good thing, and it's really weird that it's been undermined, and also, like, I've been told all I'm supposed to do is make a bunch of money and then, you know, buy a bunch of things, and that's where happiness is. Well, I don't feel happy, and the American dream doesn't feel real. The problem is the people that we're talking about. They've been weaponizing that feeling. And that's where fascism comes from. It's when you have a bunch of market economies and people don't feel like they have power, they don't feel like they have meaning in their lives, someone comes along and says, put on this armband, do this march, and you will feel powerful. And they give them an alternative. But I'll tell you what, there's a lot of power in recognizing that this isn't okay and that this has been awful. And people are starting to ask questions. They're starting to get informed. I have to tell you, the great resignation gave me a ton of hope, which was a bunch of people saying, you know what, there's more important stuff than this. It's going to be about creating solidarity. It's going to be about creating a new faith in one another that has been destroyed by neoliberalism. I actually think we're going to get there. The question is whether or not the people who are peddling and weaponizing conspiracy theories and telling people that they're being attacked by satanic cults and and evil traitors, whether or not we're going to take that seriously. And if we start taking that seriously and we start actually talking about alternatives, I think we're going to end up okay. But you're absolutely right. There is a threat of an open, hostile, uh, bloody hot civil war. And I think the first way to avoid that is to recognize the possibility of it. Okay. Thank you very much uh, for your for your insight. And um, we'll hopefully speak again on this subject. Um, uh, and I, I appreciate your optimism. I mean, I mean that because, you know, I, I am also by nature optimistic. And I, I recognize that people are, and you're right to reference Ukraine, because we are seeing the effects of an authoritarian regime taking the 
you know, taking democracy away from a, from a sovereign country. And, and well, and if I can add here. two two quick things. Yeah. One, this authoritarian movement in the United States of America is absolutely connected to Vladimir Putin, Viktor Orban. It's an international illiberalism. Like they are absolutely right. lockstep. The second thing, very, very quickly. My family is who you're talking about with the guns and the conspiracy theories. Like my family has been radicalized, but I have to tell you, when you have actual conversations with them, they understand that there's something wrong. And, and if you're having a real person to person conversation, they're like, yeah, I understand Donald Trump is a liar. I, un I understand that nothing is quite right here. They can be very reasonable. They actually can. And, and I, I do gain hope from that, which is when you start talking to actual people about actual things, good things happen as opposed to these lies and these narratives. And the instinct of humanity is that if you watch Tucker Carlson every night and you start to see that your man is supporting the baddie rather than the goodie, and it's very clear to most people that Putin is a baddie and Zelensky is a goodie, you hear your guy suddenly going for the other team I am hoping that your humanity will kick in and you'll realize that not everything is as it seems and that maybe, you know, the person that you've been following is is peddling you a story and not necessarily the one that you should be listening to. And that's an important thing. And that's another thing I've gained hope from. When this thing broke out, and again, they've been they've been playing footsie with Vladimir Putin for years. I mean, they want what he has. Yeah. When when things got really uh, at the very, very beginning, they were very overt in supporting Vladimir Putin and, and peddling his stuff. But then a lot of them started backing away from it, not because they didn't agree with Putin, but because they understood that the public didn't want it. Mm. Now, Tucker Carlson continues this because he is an avowed white supremacist, illiberal authoritarian. I mean, there's a reason he went to Hungary to interview Viktor Orban in yeah. person. But the fact that they had to take their foot off the gas for a second, I think that's really hopeful. And I think that it, that presents an opportunity for something else. Okay. Jared, thank you very much. Uh, my thanks to Jared Yates Sexton. Don't forget to subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast and also the 5 Minute News daily podcast, which drops every morning so you can listen while you're making your morning coffee. I'm Anthony Davis. Join me next Sunday morning with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.